0: And finally, we're also brought to you by Cornell Press, presenting the story of Dagger John, a.k.a. the Archbishop John Hughes, son of Ireland, founder of Fordham University, builder of St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue, mover and shaker, and a New Yorker through and through. Pulitzer prize finalist John Lowry reveals the life and times of this complicated imperfect man in his biography Dagger John Archbishop John Hughes and the Making of Irish America published by Three Hills. The New York Times calls it comprehensive and insightful, and I even reviewed it on the Barry Boys website and What did you call it? Relevant, actually. It's a it's a wonderfully written and very relevant for the times. Dagger John is available wherever you buy your books. You can also visit cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter the offer code 09BOWERY, B-O-W-E-R-Y, at checkout to save 30%. That's cornellpress.cornell.edu and code
1: o 09BOWERY to save 30%. The Bowery Boys, episode 269, Harry Houdini. And the golden age of magic in America. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
0: Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. You know, Tom, they say that New York is magical metaphorically Mm -hmm. but on this show we're going to look inside those top hats and those spirit cabinets at real magic new york's
1: stage magicians of the gilded age the gilded age and a bit later actually because we're talking about the golden age of magic in new york and in the u.s which really stretches from like let's say post-civil war into the 1920s And while the story takes place all over the country and will even be going on world tours, Mm -hmm. Greg, nearly all of the magicians we'll be talking about built big careers on the stages of New York City. This is a look at
0: magic on stage and off, not only those influential performers that delighted thousands of New Yorkers, but also strange and sometimes mysterious influences that could be found on the streets of New York itself.
1: Well, right. And because this was a time in American history of great new inventions, we'll be talking about how magicians were especially eager, you know, to start incorporating some of these new developments into their stagecraft, like electricity and hydraulics and and new lighting effects. These would make a huge difference to the profession of magic.
0: This is also, of course, going to be a mini biography of the greatest magician of all time, Harry Houdini, a man who's synonymous
1: with American magic. We cannot talk about magic and New York City without telling the incredible story of Harry Houdini, who really built a name uh, in vaudeville, escaping from all kinds of impossible scenarios. But listener, take note. This is a subject that we like so much and we're so overprepared for right now that we're actually going to save half of our notes for a special live presentation that we will be giving on stage at the New York Historical Society on Tuesday, August 14th. And we really hope that you can join us. We're going to be giving a kind of illustrated slideshow. I believe a magic lantern show. A magic lantern (laughs) show of this tribute to New York and magic. So visit nyhistory.org right now to get your tickets for Tuesday's event. But settle in as we conjure up the story
0: of Harry Houdini and the golden age of New York magic. So Tom, let's just explain really quickly what we're about to do. This is a little unique in terms of what we usually do on this show. This isn't a strict biography of Harry Houdini. In fact, the very first part of the show will be kind of Mm pre-Houdini, pre-Houdini, the history that built Houdini, and of course the magic scene in New York, the environment in which Houdini
1: made his name. So yes, we're we're trying to basically do two shows in one, which might be tricky with this topic because we both have so much we want to talk about here. Sure. I mean, it's
0: uh, this is a blockbuster. So where are we beginning?
1: Well, we're going to be talking about magic in New York and also throughout America in the late 19th and early 20th century. It's an entire industry and contains lots of different types of magicians are performing different types of magic in front of different types of crowds
0: so let's start with the, the most basic type of magician here on the street uh, a, a magician as entertainer where would i see them and what would they be doing
1: well they would probably be part of another show they'd be traveling with circuses traveling with sideshows, maybe in medicine shows they're traveling across the country I read a wonderful book called The Last Greatest Magician in the World by author Jim Steinmeier. It tells the story of famed magician Howard Thurston, who he considered to be the the greatest magician of all time, and how Thurston, early on in his career, tried to make it as a young magician by working this traveling uh, sideshow scene in the 1890s. And it's an amazing time in in the U.S. history because— you know, the the country is expanding westward and smaller towns out west, mining towns. They are starving for entertainment. Mm -hmm. So... All kinds of entertainers are coming through and they presented all kinds of entertainers like acrobats and you know exotic dancers and human marvels (laughs) and and magicians were one of those acts
0: and I and I assume because they're traveling acts they're sort of simple acts and and can be done by sort of a single individual with very few props
1: right because budgets were small The crews were small. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, steamer trunk, right? Just that's it. Yeah. Anything that was performed on a stage then had to be put back in a trunk and loaded up on a wagon um, and it would continue on down the road. So these were mostly like card tricks, you know, things with rings and handkerchiefs and Mm -hmm. that sort
0: of thing. But after a few decades of this, some of them certainly would have made their names as magicians and probably sought out larger audiences.
1: Absolutely, you know, and magic history books are filled with the names of men, almost entirely men, mm-hmm. who were traveling around playing in large cities. You know, they might do an engagement here in New York, but then head off and play Boston and Philadelphia, take it on the road, you know, play Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Chicago. And depending on that magician, they might travel as a large show, you know, with a large cast of assistants and even musicians and big backstage crews. And what kind of tricks were these magicians doing? I assume they were more advanced. Well, right. And if so if they had to fill an entire theater for their show, they had to do more than just like a handkerchief. Trick, yeah, they had to know. be
0: big. You had to be able to see them from the back row.
1: Right. So they were building illusions by the late 1800s. They would build up, you know, because they had like an hour, hour and a half to fill in their show, they would start small, maybe with some like higher level card tricks. Some of the big names were really adept at throwing cards, making cards appear and throwing them to individuals in the audience. Whoa, it's exciting. Yeah, that isn't just a card trick. That's like, <laughs> that is amazing. huh but then they'd work over the course of their show up to the big illusions, you know, where they would make uh, people disappear and reappear. They'd, they'd levitate their female assistants. They would, you know, suddenly a large animal might appear or disappear. They had to go out with a big bang. And during this period that we're talking about, there were some very famous magicians like Herman the Great, a man named Harry Keller, Howard Thurston, who I just mentioned, and several others. And a Houdini, of course. Uh, Hold on. Now, Houdini's a bit of a trickier subject because I was just talking about magicians who would travel the country and put on shows by themselves, Mm -hmm. fill theaters. Houdini's a different story. Houdini was working for most of his career in vaudeville. Hmm. He was a star, of course, top billing, the most famous vaudeville performer in the country. But when you saw Houdini, for the most part, you would sit through a bunch of other performers. You'd see singing and tap dancing, somebody telling jokes. And then finally, at the sort of like the top part of the program, Houdini would come out and he would astonish the audience. With some magnificent escape or some feat of endurance, you know, he'd, he'd escape from handcuffs or be tied up in a straitjacket or whatever. We'll be talking about those tricks yeah. in a minute. But a bite size kind of magic
0: performance and not, of course, a whole scenario.
1: Right. Uh, 12, 15 minutes Ooh. of Houdini hmm. uh, during which he would really go for like the very best escape that he had. You're saying escape artist. He was, a, he was an actual magician, right? Yeah, he started his career, as we'll be talking about, with card tricks. But for most of his career, he was known as an escape artist, able to just break free out of increasingly impossible situations. But these were happening on the vaudeville stage. I think it might be helpful to get a little more details on some of these
0: major names, Mm -hmm. since they're all big influences on Houdini.
1: Well, the very first one we should mention is not an American at all, but rather French. And that would be Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. So Houdin. Oh, yeah. We see where that
0: influence comes in.
1: (laughs) Quite literally. Mm -hmm. Houdin became known as the father of modern magic Although he was born in France in 1805 and trained and worked throughout his career as a clockmaker. And he sort of tinkered with things. You know, he invented little automatons, you know, those fun little mechanical figures that you wind up and do extraordinary things. Creepy little old robots. (laughs) Right. Very. uh, What was the movie? uh, Hugo. Yes, Hugo. (laughs) Very Hugo-esque. But he actually built his own magic theater in the 1840s and started staging magic shows called Soiree Fantastique in Paris. Notably for this story, in 1855, after he retired, he wrote his memoirs. He, he like, moved off to the countryside and spent his days in a bucolic setting writing his memoirs of working in magic. And his name, obviously, would live on forever because of a young admirer who would come along Mm -hmm. decades later.
0: Next, uh, you mentioned Herman the Herman the Great, right? Yes. Okay.
1: Herman the Great, another French-born father figure to magicians. Alexander Herman was born in Paris in 1844 into a very magical family, quite literally, because his father, though a doctor, was also a magician. And it wasn't just his father. His brother, Carl, or compars, was also like a very well-known magician. And Carl brought young Alexander into his act. So he was trained by his brother. They traveled all over the U.S. He was a great character. He had a handlebar mustache, a thick French accent that he sort of worked to charm his audiences. He was very charming and had like a twinkle in his eye. And he performed extensively in New York City. He even got married in New York at City Hall by Mayor William Wickham on March 27th, 1875. And during his marriage ceremony, he produced a roll of bills from the mayor's beard. (laughs) He didn't produce a bouquet. Isn't that what the magicians usually do? Yeah, but I think he was trying to pay off the mayor. (laughs)
0: Now let's move on to Harry Keller because he's a fascinating individual. and He performed in New York frequently.
1: Yes, and he was born in the U.S., born in Erie, Pennsylvania in 1849. He would become known as the Dean of American Magicians, and he had these big elaborate stage shows. Early on, he actually traveled around with spiritualism acts, so that would kind of influence his career, and you'd see these great posters. I'm pointing to one for Greg right now. Of, like, Keller, you know, with a levitating woman, but he's, like, pointing his fingers and there are, like, lightning bolts and electricity coming out of his fingers. So he he, he really sort of amped up the cheese a little bit. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. His most famous act was something he developed called the Levitation of Princess Karnak, uh, which he did on stage. But it was this amazing levitation of a woman high above his head, um, and he'd kind of walk all around her. It was taking levitation to the next level.
0: It must have been very uplifting.
1: Um, And finally, Howard (laughs) Thurston was the other one who I mentioned. Thurston was born in 1869 in Columbus, another Ohio magician. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And as I mentioned, I read this whole book by Jim Steinmeier on the life of Howard Thurston. Which is so colorful because it involves petty crime and he gets sent to reform school. And But he leaves it all, inspired by Herman the Great. He leaves it all uh, to become a magician. He struggles. He arrives in New York at one point. He's broke. He's living on a park bench in Union Square. He just wants to get on a stage and perform his act. Somebody sees him doing card tricks uh, in Union like, Square. Like in the park? Yes, And one thing leads to another. He gets an audition and he lands in vaudeville working for Tony Pastor, the vaudeville impresario on 14th Street. The major
0: name in vaudeville.
1: At the time, yes. Mm -hmm. And his career develops to an incredible place where just years later, he's traveling the world and the U.S. with a huge, elaborate stage show. And he really is like when we think of the great old big magicians with these traveling, lavish spectacles. That is Howard Thurston.
0: It is like a traveling musical that goes from city to city, right? But this is yeah. in the late 19th century. and But it's drawing those same kinds of audiences and playing those same kinds of theaters.
1: And Thurston takes us into the 20th century, though, and he actually takes over for Keller and buys up a bunch of his tricks. Um, so that levitation of Princess Karnak, he actually bought from Keller. And took it one step further where he would actually like allow people to come up on stage during the levitation and walk underneath it and look up. I mean, we won't give away how it was done, but let's just say... He was taking a chance by inviting all these people up on stage. When you say buying a trick, do you mean like buying the rights to it,
0: buying the secrets, Mm -hmm. like buying the actual like paraphernalia? Kind of all of that. The mechanisms. In
1: in this case, he bought. um, He was a successor to Keller. He bought Keller's blessing. Basically, Keller bestowed on him the title of the next king of magic because there was really only one who was sort of designated the king of American magic (laughs) at a time. Uh, So it transferred from Keller to Thurston, and along with that, he got his contacts and his engagements at various theaters around the country, and he got his blessing, he got his tricks, and Thurston would continue performing until his death in 1936. So keep that in mind when we're talking about Houdini, that Houdini was actually friends um, and associates with Keller and with Thurston, but they were doing entirely different kinds of shows. So what's, what's great about what you've described, these are the great men
0: of magic. These people are performing in all of the great theaters of Broadway, from Union Square, Madison Square, up to Herald Square and beyond. Thousands of people were delighted by their acts. But what I find especially interesting about seeing these men in New York is that outside of those theaters... You could also see another form of magic that was happening in the real world. I mean, in the 1870s, as wizards were making women levitate on the stage, outside audiences heard the rattle of the elevated trains, which were levitating passengers down the avenues. You had electric generators down on Pearl Street, which were operated by Edison, bringing electric light to homes magically out of nothing. Later on, you'd have airplanes, air conditioning, indoor plumbing. You had all this practical magic happening in a city that would have been considered sorcery a decade or two before.
1: Wow. So in this time then, in the late 19th century, magicians had to work overtime mm-hmm. to make their wizardry stand out. <laughs> exactly. They yeah. could end up getting upstaged by, you know, the latest technology to debut on, you know, Ladies Mile oh, or yeah.
0: whatever. Oh, well, I'm glad you mentioned Ladies Mile actually, because another interesting aspect of magic was that you could now purchase it yourself and you could do your own magic tricks at home. There were magic shops all over the place, but the greatest in New York was just a few blocks north of Ladies Mile underneath the elevated train. I wonder if there are any ladies that happened to wander into this place.
1: I'd love to meet up with those ladies. Where <laughs> Where was this famous magic shop? All right. Exactly. It's it's 6th
0: Avenue and between 29th and 30th Street. The name of the shop was Martinka's. It was opened in 1872 by two German immigrants, Francis and Antonio Martinka. It was a conjuring and toy shop, but what it sold inside were automatons, Mm -hmm. similar to the ones you described (laughs) mechanical monkeys, a wide assortment of magic paraphernalia, wands. Lots of oversized coins with their slogan on it. The slogan being, the world wants to be deceived. Let it be deceived.
1: That's a lot to print on a coin. No wonder it was oversized. (laughs) It
0: had to be. (laughs) From a description published in 1896, quote, the shop is narrow and a trifle dingy. There are small showcases filled with boxes and glasses and tubes and cups and balls and other apparently simple and useless toys. But these toys are not all so simple or so cheap as they look. And some of them do the most surprising things in the hands of their master.
1: Well, that sounds fun and somewhat mystifying. But Mm -hmm. these sound like kind of small, you know, like table magic. Sure.
0: Yeah. Those are for just people coming off the street who want to, like, take something home to delight their children. The real tricks in the so-called Palace of Magic here were actually in the back room, reserved only for those in the profession of magicians and wizardry, handcrafted one-of-a-kind tricks that were made there at the shop. Martinkas became so central to the industry of magic in the United States that in 1902, the Society of American Magicians was formed. If you wanted to be like, a top-notch magician you had to be a member of this particular association.
1: Well, yeah, it advanced the cause of magic and magic as an industry. Imagine the contacts, you know. <laughs> oh, sure. Although they had, a, you know, they were fleeting, they would sometimes disappear. Those- <laughs> What's interesting is that
0: there were a roster of famous magicians that even owned and operated Martinkas. It was like so, so key to the industry. One of the owners was named Carter the Great, who kept his pet lion named Monty here inside Martinkas <laughs> that people could stop by and see.
1: In the back room?
0: Was he available to anybody? I think he kind of did whatever he wanted. I think Monty did whatever he wanted.
1: Including performing a three-card Monty. <laughs>
0: Believe it or not, Martinka's is still around today, although it's it's an online retailer. The the store has long since closed. It's it's still around, though, in the ether.
1: Although several classic magic stores still exist in New York City, including my favorite, um, where I went maybe a couple times to prepare for this show, Tannin's, on West 34th Street near Herald Square. Greg, while doing research for this, I had the great fortune of going through the archives, the magic archives at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. And they just have boxes of magic ephemera, including so many catalogs of magic shops in New York, but also in Philly and Boston and around the world, actually. And flipping through these catalogs of tricks, you just see how there was really like a big mail order market Mm -hmm. for these tricks, small tricks, but also big ones. But it it was a big
0: deal. If you look through newspapers from the late 19th century, the classified ads, you can buy all manner of magic tricks from all over the country. I mean, it was a thriving industry. Now, I want to get serious for a minute because we have been up to this time been talking about the craft of magic, the craft of essentially playing tricks, Mm -hmm. right? But what's also interesting is While all this is going on on the stage, there are those who profess to practice real magic, religious-based fringes, those who dabbled in the occult, versus, of course, stage magic, which was a genuine craft, a performance in many ways
1: like a singer or an actor. That's a really interesting distinction. So you've got people like... Keller or Herman the Great who are playing on this theme of wizardry and maybe dressing up and kind of playing a role of somebody who's got magical powers. Mm-hmm. But the but for the most part, the audience doesn't believe that they actually possess magical powers. And the magicians themselves don't necessarily seriously claim no, to right. have those magical powers. And so
0: the key here is like that distinction it becomes a little blurred here in the Gilded Age. For many, magic was not a light frivolity. Okay, we're not even going to talk about in this show like Aleister Crowley and the weird sex magic that would that would pop up in Greenwich Village in the early 20th century, but look different that Different show. It's a different show.
1: I <laughs> that mean, would probably have more downloads than this <laughs> one.
0: I mean magic at, really as a form of religion. In 1875, a Russian occultist by the name of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, a.k.a. Madam Blavatsky, Blavatsky founded a a new way of thought, a religion even, the Theosophical Society, from her headquarters in, guess what neighborhood, Hell's Kitchen. Mm. That same year, she wrote a book called The Science of Magic, Proofs of Its Existence. Essentially, she was tying in a lot of different kinds of things. Ancient wisdoms, Gnosticism. So, th- But they're not doing tricks. This isn't like rabbit from a hat kind of magic. No, no, no hocus pocusy stuff here. But like genuine practices of ancient wisdoms gnosticism this was a very formative movement in the united states but it would like in their practice they did believe that they would be doing certain things like out of body experiences but they were calling this magic okay so this was happening at the same time that people were like sawing women in half on stages sometimes across the street of bigger concern to many New York magicians was a disturbing corollary to their adventures here in the spirit world. And that was this phenomenon known as spiritualism.
1: Spiritualism, right. And I mentioned that Keller did kind of a spiritualism show early on in his career, but that's different from this other magic that you're talking about. It's kind of different. Let me explain. The spiritualism
0: movement was pretty much born by a sister act uh, by the name of... With Whoopi? (laughs) The Fox sisters, actually. No Whoopi. Three uh, sisters from upstate New York who first manifested these powers of being able to speak to the afterworld. Speak to the afterlife. Uh, They made their New York debut in seances and parlors around New York in 1850. They soon toured the world as mediums and performed communications with spirits even on stages.
1: They were communicating with spirits on stage in New York? Yeah, they would eventually go to stages. They started
0: in parlors and seances and things.
1: And how would they communicate? Uh, At at least their
0: act in the early days was just a series of rappings, like... You know, audiences would ask questions and then the rapping would would be answers. And this would be taking place in the dark. Yeah, I mean, no one knew where these sounds were coming from, but the Fox sisters were able to divine them and pull them together and then interpret them. But there was showmanship with these ladies. Their first private performances were in the rooms at the Barnum Hotel. In 1850
1: Mm. so yeah do we know how they were doing this how were they pulling this off or were they really like communicating well
0: later one of the sisters recanted everything and said it was fake a lot of people think it was something to do with their cracking of their knuckles that they could do something we don't really know because they kept going back and forth in in what their real story was but this gave birth to the whole spiritual movement you know, born from these very unique American religious ideas that living humans could puncture the spirit world and communicate with spirits. It's so big that we can't get into it here, but after the Civil War, the, these ideas became extremely popular. Thousands of people claimed to be able to speak to the dead in seances, spirit writing. Eventually, all this took place on a stage, you know,
1: for a ticket price. You mentioned that this became very popular after the Civil War. It would see another burst of popularity after World War one and even some more popularity after World War Mm two and that was because obviously there were millions Mm -hmm. of people who were killed in these conflicts and there was just this need to try to communicate with Mm -hmm. those who had
0: departed I mean even Martinkas gotten to the act because one of the most popular items at Martinkas in the early 20th century were these brand new Ouija boards
1: but wait a second, how are Ouija boards even related to magicians? I mean, it right. seems to have skidded off the road here. And
0: yet they're being sold here at like the premier magic shop. Well, a lot of magicians actually, even from the beginning, were very antagonistic or very indifferent, at least, to the, to the spiritualism movement. The great Hermon himself in 1894 said, quote, I have been accused of being a spiritualist and of accomplishing many illusions through the aid of spirits, while the spiritualists, on the other hand, have accused me of so closely imitating the work of their mediums as to seemingly accomplish by trickery what they claim to do by spiritual aid. So you can see that they're kind of rubbing against the spiritualists because Mm. magicians are performing a craft. Right. And they want people to go home after seeing their show, and they don't want to think ooh, was that person connecting with a spirit? The magician wants the audience to think, how did they perform that trick?
1: How did they do that? If they were also members of the Society of American Magicians, they were meeting up and discussing their craft, and they were respecting each other for their ability to pull off these illusions, Mm -hmm. right? So you would be respecting each other for your fine stagecraft, and that was an understanding that you, another professional, was not, you weren't tapping into some some higher spirit Mm -hmm. to get through this, or some other spirit, you were actually just, it was the genius of your stagecraft.
0: Yeah, it was essentially obscuring the artistry of being a magician, the magicians also knew how to perform all of these tricks. And so when they saw mediums doing the same thing, but, you know, bilking poor, distraught people who wanted to to speak to the afterworld, to speak to the grandmother or whatever, they saw that these people were being robbed by these frauds. Right. And so they became really the forefront of debunking the whole spiritualist movement. They
1: knew all the tricks of the trade.
0: Another subtext here that I I should mention is that these great stage magicians as you said were mostly men while many of the most famous mediums were women. So there was a dynamic here that women were tarnishing the craft of being a magician mm. and cheapening it by dragging it from the finest stages of Broadway to these dank dusty parlors. But to bring the story back here to New York specifically In the 1890s, let's put us in the 1890s, we have great magicians performing elaborate tricks with brilliant stagecraft here on Broadway. The Great White Way, by this point, with their names and lights. You have a variety of different magic stars working from those stages to vaudeville all over town, from Union Square to Coney Island. And then, of course, you had different kinds of magic being performed on stages and parlors across the city.
1: So that is a state of magic in the 1890s. Mm-hmm.
0: And that would be the world that a young man named Eric Weiss would step into in 1891 when he would step into his very first dime museum to perform a magical act. He would rule over New York as one of the most famous and successful entertainers in its history and would change the world of magic.
1: Who dat, Greg? Houdini! We'll get to the amazing story of young Eric Weiss after this. On April
0: 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still
1: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans. Our values, our struggles... All right. Well, in the first half of the show, Greg, you promised that we would spend half of the show talking kind of about the state of magic in New York Mm -hmm. in the Golden Age. Mm -hmm. And then we would turn to a quick biography of probably the famous magician or escape artist to ever live and perform in New York. And that is, of course, young Eric Weiss or Harry Houdini. And Harry's story really picks up many of the same themes that we've talked about in the first half. I mean, the fact that he, early in his career, would travel around, you know, with different acts, circus side shows, medicine shows. He would get into spiritualism, you know, do a spiritualist routine, but then things would take a very different direction for Harry when he, in some ways, turned away from magic toward handcuffs and straitjackets. So was Weiss was Eric
0: Weiss? He... We can just call him Harry. <laughs> All right. Harry, Mr. Houdini, was he born in New York City?
1: No, he was born in Budapest on March twenty-fourth, eighteen seventy-four. So he he came from Hungary. His his father was a rabbi. He would be one of seven children. And when he was just four years old, his family immigrated to the United States. They would settle in Appleton, Wisconsin, because it would be there that his father would get a job serving as a rabbi. However, times were not easy for the Weiss family in Appleton, Wisconsin, especially because his father didn't really speak English. So he lost his job and and the family was forced to move to Milwaukee, where times were rough and, and the kids had to take on odd jobs just to support the family. So Houdini here as a child, was a he- already dabbling in magic, perhaps? Well, he was dabbling in circuses. Um, He had attended a circus back in Appleton, Wisconsin, when he was just seven years old. And he was particularly captivated by the performance of the tightrope walker, uh, a man named Jean Weitzman, who did this daredevil act without a net and for his finale actually hung from the tightrope by his teeth. Wow. Sounds like the kind of stunt that houdini would do in his act later (laughs) indeed and in fact he would sort of imitate that act a couple years later dressing the same not doing the bit by his teeth Mm -hmm. when he debuted in a neighborhood circus as an acrobat called eric the prince of the air (laughs) but but he wasn't working per se he was actually working he had gotten an apprenticeship with a hardware store when he was just 11 and he spent his spare time kind of trying to figure out how locks worked. He was very good, very adept at picking locks from an early age. Um, and in fact, back in Wisconsin, he even helped a, a sheriff who had trouble with his handcuffs. He got his handcuffs to pop open I, I when he was a child. I was going to say this was a a very troublesome
0: skill for a child to have. I must say well, it proved <laughs> it proved to
1: be very practical uh, for for Erich. Because when he was just 13 years old in 1887, he and his father moved to New York to try to find work for his dad and then also for the family. And in this time, you know, he took jobs as a messenger. He got a job in a necktie factory, but he was also learning card tricks and coin tricks. And when he was 17 years old, he read the memoir of Houdin that we mentioned Mm. before Mm -hmm and became really inspired by magic and, and by Houdin, who became his hero. And because of that, young Erich Weiss decided, you know, for his stage name, that he would take on Houdin's name. And actually, as a tribute to Houdin, he would add an I to the end of it because somebody had told him along the way that by adding an I to the end of any name, you're making it mean sort of like that thing you Mm -hmm. know so he thought that by adding an i to Houdin and becoming houdini it would basically mean Houdin like (laughs) got that
0: and so where did the name harry come in
1: well his name was erish but his nickname was erry right so i mean it's not a big stretch then to Mm. go from erry to harry Mm -hmm. plus you have alliteration right so it sounds nice he became harry houdini but officially, then on April third, eighteen ninety-one, he devoted himself to doing magic full time under the stage name of Harry Houdini. And this was just like like small bits, yeah. Well, sleight of hand. He started out really uh, in card magic, working at Hubert's Dime Museum on Fourteenth Street in eighteen ninety-two. But it was yeah mostly limited to small hand, you know, up close mm-hmm. card magic. And like Thurston, he would then join various traveling shows. He worked in 1893. Coney Island, because remember his family at this point is living uh, on the Upper East Side, comes back to Coney Island where he was performing magic in a sideshow. And he fell in love with a woman named Bess Rahner, um, who he started working with. He took Bess on as his assistant, and he married her the next year uh, when he was 20 years old.
0: It's amazing that he gets his start here at Coney Island. I imagine that the amusements of the late 1890s are sort of absorbed into his repertoire.
1: Well, and imagine the contacts you could also make at Coney Island and the sideshow. You know, mm-hmm. everybody kind of, one trick could lead to another. And indeed, the Houdinis, as Bess and Harry build themselves, became known for a signature trick that they did called the metamorphosis, where Harry would get tied up He'd be put in a bag and then locked up in a trunk. Bess would then pull a curtain around her uh, and the trunk, clap her hands three times, and then pull the curtain back, and lo and behold, it was Harry standing there, not Bess. He'd unlock the trunk, open up the bag, and Bess would emerge all tied up. Have psychologists
0: analyzed this particular marital trick on stage?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Don't even start that's with psychology that's here. That's true, that's true, that's true. So for the next couple of years, Harry and Bess would tour with various productions. Um, they joined Doctor Hill's California Concert Company, which was a, a traveling medicine show and Harry would do card tricks to try to get people into the medicine show. That morphed into a spiritualism show, so Harry and Bess had to learn the tricks of the, the oh. spiritualist trade. You know, they the, had how, to, the techniques to yes. look like
0: you were a spiritualist.
1: And actually, Harry would turn against all of that spiritualism as entertainment uh, because of that experience that he had. He found it very sad to sort of offer what he saw as false hope to audiences who were really craving any kind of contact with long-deceased relatives.
0: So we're still in the late 1890s. The dawn of the 20th century is upon us. These lock picking tricks from when he was a kid. When when do these start manifesting themselves into his act?
1: Well, he starts kind of experimenting with handcuffs again in the late 1890s as a way to kind of make his act stand out a little bit more. And it turned out unexpectedly to be a PR bonanza for him. Now, this happened in Chicago in 1898. He challenged the local law enforcement officials to shackle him up to the best of their ability. He was doing this before one of his shows. So so you had, like, the chief of police locking him up, tying him up, and putting him behind a screen. With their own shackles, their own handcuffs. That's right. They were locking him up. Then Not they put, trick handcuffs. No, regulation handcuffs. Okay. And they put him behind a screen or inside a cabinet. And two minutes later, Harry emerged a free man. He made sure from that very first appearance in Chicago that there were plenty of press on hand so that they could witness it and report on it. And he used this as a way to land him several pages of free press and pack the theaters where his his show was performing. So it's like a
0: patina of authenticity because you're actually going and using the locals uh, really as part of your stagecraft here.
1: Yeah. And locals who are also kind of celebrities Mm -hmm. themselves. Um, When I was going through the archives at the New York Public Library, I came across folder after folder of these sworn affidavits. (laughs) issued by these police departments starting in 1898. The very first one I found was dated January 9th, 1898 from the Department of Police, City of Chicago. And it reads, to whom it may concern, this is to certify that Harry Houdini gave a private exhibition at the Central Police Station Wednesday, January 4th, in the presence of about 200 officers. And we can highly endorse Houdini as a world beater and his performance of getting out of handcuffs and shackles, etc., etc., has puzzled our police department and proven of great value to said department. Respectfully, Chief of Detectives. <laughs> But his the biggest break that he would receive actually came next year in 1899 when Martin Beck, who ran the Orpheum circuit of vaudeville houses, caught Harry's routine in Minnesota. He thought that the handcuff routine was amazing. However, um, his other magic he found to be like not so hot. And so Beck signed him to the Orpheum vaudeville circuit, but he insisted that Houdini drop the other magic from his act and just focus on these handcuff escapes.
0: So because Beck brings Houdini in, but only gives him these small time periods, Houdini needs to focus on like one or two things that are like these sort of quick,
1: exciting acts because he has to get off the stage. Yeah, he only had 12 to 15 minutes. And Beck said, you will be using your 12 to 15 minutes only to do handcuff escape acts.
0: Well, I mean, this is certainly giving him like an exciting reputation and also making him a national star.
1: Absolutely. Uh, because he would tour not just in the U.S., but in September of 1900, Beck sent him off to Europe, where he went in London straight to Scotland Yard, where he escaped from those authorities' shackles. <laughs> and really made his name in London, and then he was off to Dresden and Berlin and France and all over the place, he actually would stay more or less in Europe touring for six years. Well, that's quite a tour. The thought was that, yeah, if he could make a big name for himself, um, you know, they could use that, and they were using it on all kinds of ads and for all kinds of publicity purposes, that he was seeing sellout yeah. crowds in London and Berlin and in, in front of notables all over Europe.
0: But why were all of these local law enforcement agencies, why were they even agreeing to this? Because they were essentially saying someone could break out of our handcuffs, out of our cells.
1: Yeah, there's that angle on it. But Houdini, after escaping from their shackles and their handcuffs, and it would get more complicated as the years went on, he would break out of their prison cells. He'd break out of their straitjackets. He would then offer a demonstration to the authorities, you know, Mm. about often exposing some of his methods, not all of his methods, Mm -hmm. but, you know, common ways to pick locks and break out of handcuffs. Although I should note that not every police department was totally on Houdini's side. Some people saw what he was doing as fraud or just kind of annoying. You know, he was obviously (laughs) trying to garner up free publicity. Well,
0: he wasn't doing this for the benefit of law enforcement across the country, was doing it for his own publicity and for his own purposes.
1: Oh, he knew everything about free publicity. There's a lot of P.T. Barnum in Harry Houdini. Mm-hmm.
0: So when did he come back home to New York?
1: Well, during that six-year tour, he was back in New York a few times. One of those times, he actually bought a new family residence, a, a lavish 26-room home in Harlem at 278 West 113th Street. That's just a block east of Morningside Park. And it was a home not just for Harry and Bess, but also for his beloved mother, and for his brother, Leopold, and his sister, Gladys. It was kind of the Houdini homestead.
0: It would eventually also be home to his extensive library of great magic texts and all sorts of collectibles. Like, he was really into Edgar Allan Poe, for instance. Oh, yeah. And so all of that was there. It was really one of the greatest magic collections in the world. He even hired a librarian and personal servant named Alfred Becks, who lived in... At the house also to maintain this collection.
1: And I think it was because of the work of Alfred that, you know, we're still able to see many of these documents and those sworn affidavits, which were in perfect condition. Yeah, you flipped through documents that Mr. Beck probably put there himself. And let me just tell you, those affidavits were also translated into like five or six different languages so that they could be easily understood and reprinted in European newspapers. Smart. Smart. So here
0: 1906 he's he's rich he's famous he his name is all over the place D- does he have any competitors in this particular aspect of magic of of escape artistry Well here? of
1: course almost immediately you know he he was so popular that he inspired others to copy his routine in Europe and also in the US If you look through newspapers and magic journals of the time you'll see all kinds of escape acts that could be booked Many of them had names that were very similar to Houdini. There was even one called Udini. (laughs) O-U-D-I-N-I. Houdini? (laughs) It got so bad that Houdini actually decided to get his brother, Dash, in on the act. So Dash took on the stage name Hardeen and was known as the brother of Houdini. In a nutshell... Hardine would perform many of Harry's tricks like a couple months after Harry. So Harry might do a new spectacular escape. Then Hardine would come along and perform the same act, say, several months later, a year later, because he knew his brother's techniques. This was very smart because it allowed them to capitalize on Houdini's fame and his methods. And when Hardine was done with that act... Houdini often exposed his own methods, Mm. thus blocking other people from copying the act.
0: Right, spoiling it.
1: Yeah, he issued his own spoilers (laughs) before other people could come along and capitalize on it. (laughs) But yes, he comes back to the U.S. in 1906, and he saw after a couple of years that even though he was very popular and well-known, his audiences were starting to slip. Maybe they were getting kind of, like, tired of this handcuff routine, So he knew that he had to introduce new escapes. So in 1908, he concocted his famous milk can escape Mm. in which he'd get handcuffed and then securely locked into this 22-gallon iron milk canister from which he would escape.
0: Today, it would be a milk carton and easier to escape from.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's... It's a 22-gallon it's, like, several feet tall. Oh, yeah,
0: sure, sure. Yeah, I've seen, the, I've seen those pictures. I mean, and where was this performed at?
1: Again, this would be performed as part of a vaudeville act, and you can see one of those milk canisters in the exhibit that's on right now at the New York Historical Society. They actually have one of Houdini's milk canisters. Needless to say, it was a very dangerous act. In 1912, when he was performing at Hammerstein's Victoria Theatre at Times Square, he was performing Up on the Roof Garden, to drum up a little publicity, he got locked up in a box, and the box was thrown into the East River. And the, the audience
0: followed him to to the banks of the East River and watched it plunge into the into the water?
1: What, no, 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 no. It wasn't part of that show. Oh, oh. T- This was to drum up publicity for that oh, show. Oh, I see, right. Okay. But there was plenty of press on hand. And what about one of his most famous
0: acts, The Chinese Water Escape?
1: Yeah, that came a couple years later in 1913, where... He, That's even more dramatic. His feet would be sort of locked into a hold and he'd be hoisted up in the air. So he's hanging from his ankles and then lowered into a tank of water from which, of course, he would have to escape. That's already making me feel uncomfortable and claustrophobic. And Greg, he was upside down too. (laughs) He did that trick while touring Europe again in 1913. And it was during this trip on July 16th, 1913 when his mother Cecilia Weiss passed away the passing of his mother was, was truly traumatic for Houdini who had a very special and close relationship with his mom and he as a result cancelled shows in Copenhagen mm-hmm. where he was at the time and came back to the US uh, to be with his family and he would stay here for many months he wouldn't sail back to Europe until September. Well it would change the whole nature of his act. And the way that he viewed spiritualism. hmm now, he had to come back to the U.S. during World War One. He was not able to travel around Europe. So he's back in the U.S. during the war where he premieres another of his signature escapes, and that was his straitjacket escape, which turned into another publicity coup for him because starting in 1915, he would arrive in a city, be put in a straitjacket, and then be hoisted up, usually by crane, to the highest place in the city, usually right outside the largest newspaper's office. So he would do these mass demonstrations for people. And if you look up Houdini today on the web, you can see all kinds of photos of Houdini hanging by his feet outside wow. in front of you know thousands of people who are looking up at him in a straitjacket. And this is notable because he started at this time to perform his escape not concealed in any way, not hidden by a curtain, but there in the open for all to behold. There were no illusions that people were seeing. There was no, it was just his abilities yes. on display. And in 1917, on top of becoming probably the most famous vaudeville performer in the country, he also was elected the president of the Society of American Magicians.
0: Now he was like literally the leading magician in the United States. Now we're going to skip past, like I said, this is a mini biography, so we're going to skip past his adventures in aviation. Um, He was the first
1: to fly in Australia.
0: (laughs) There you go. We're going to skip past his film career, although his first movie, by the way, was filmed in Yonkers. Because I want to focus on the aspect of Houdini's life that I always find the most interesting. And that is his rising skepticism with spiritualism, Mm -hmm. as as you had mentioned. In particular, he had a very famous, very public friendship and then rivalry with one of the most famous writers in the world at the time, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle
1: he of sherlock holmes oh yes
0: and a strong proponent of afterworld communication he even believed that houdini was a medium and that he was concocting a hoax that he was saying that this was crap but that he actually had like real communication with spirits he wrote houdini and said quote my dear chap why go around the world seeking a demonstration of the occult when you are giving
1: one all the time? So Doyle thought that Houdini was performing these famous escapes by using some other magical power, real magic. Yeah, I mean,
0: Houdini was a master, not just at escape artistry, but like a lot of, a lot of just regular magic. And he was so skilled at it that he made it look simple. And of course, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle thought it looked too simple that it wasn't just some sort of sleight of hand it wasn't trickery but it was this thing that he that Doyle believed in very very seriously and that was this communication with the spirit world Doyle even went on a an American tour with various proofs of the spirit world of spiritualism In April of 1922, he actually lectured at both Carnegie Hall and at the Brooklyn Academy of Music with a show called Recent Psychic Evidence, and in it he had all sorts of different slides and presentations absolutely proving this connection with the spirit world. Houdini, meanwhile, was, of course, aggressively at this time ramping up his debunking efforts, with mediums through works with organizations like with the society of American magicians and others. He wrote in journals and even he published books. He even challenged many of the more famous mediums in New York to personally demonstrate their powers on stage. And so this was kind of a regular thing and who it's not just Houdini. It's actually a lot of other famous magicians. The whole skeptic world Mm -hmm. against, against mediums was actually quite large at this time.
1: But was he attacking Doyle? Or I don't understand. Were they, were they friends? Well, yeah, they, they were friends. I mean, it was slightly
0: non-antagonistic at first. They just had these differing opinions. But eventually their friendship would deteriorate after an incident where Doyle and his wife invited Houdini out to a seance... In Atlantic City purportedly to contact Houdini's mother via a process known as automatic writing where a medium would be possessed and a message would then be written out as though it were that particular person who had passed on
1: didn't we talk about this on a ghost stories episode years ago
0: yes and I'm, I'm not going to replay that story because you did a very good job of it so I'm gonna I'm gonna put that up on the website but to summarize
1: Lady Doyle was claiming to channel the spirit of Harry's departed mother.
0: But this particular session actually left both of these two men even more affirmed in their beliefs because Doyle absolutely believed in the power of spiritualism and saw it with his own eyes. But Houdini was more skeptical than ever because the information that was being transcribed was, was transparently fraudulent to him.
1: So by this point in in Houdini's life, it seems like his career has kind of taken a turn.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's still doing stage performances, of course, but uh, he's focusing his energies on these, essentially these, this mission to not just debunk, but to find, to see if there maybe really is true connections with the spirit world, but to unmask those who he saw as frauds. Tom, did you know, by the way, he, for a time, even owned martinka's magic shop
1: wow he really did it all and to consider that he's like the biggest magician (laughs) or person in the biz running the biggest shop that's kind of amazing and you know not
0: not that he had like too much modesty here for monty the lion is gone and has now been replaced by a huge bust of houdini himself which would which would sit at the very front of the shop
1: and by the way this is while he's also the president of the society of american magicians Uh uh-huh
0: who wouldn't be meeting in the back room?
1: And he was traveling around the country, encouraging magicians in other cities to form their own chapters for the societies. He was really actively trying to help magic as an industry grow. He was its primary proponent in the United States.
0: His obsession with debunking real magic extended beyond mediums and to those who purported to use magic from other spiritual means such as a performing artist named Raman Bay who came to New York and claimed to be a fakir or faker when Bay came to town he had a show on Broadway at the Selwyn Theater on 42nd mm-hmm. Street that's the American Airlines <laughs> Theater D- at <laughs> among Bay's spiritual tricks was an underwater immersion in a metal box It sounds a little
1: bit like his Chinese water torture.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, but it was almost like a coffin that would be submerged in water, and he would perform this for journalists as publicity and would go underwater for an hour without oxygen. Houdini couldn't let this go because it was very similar to things that he had done. So on August 5th, 1926, at the Hotel Shelton, Houdini replicated this trick, submerged himself in water in a in a metal box, and actually came up for air ninety
1: one minutes. So actually broke that record by thirty-one minutes. How the, in the world did he stay underwater for ninety one minutes? It's a sort of a distraction technique
0: because nowhere does it say the box did not have oxygen. So what this was really about was was about controlled breathing. Houdini mastered this to such a degree through his many years of tricks that he was able to control his breathing and slow it down so that he was able to do this for 91 minutes. He later claimed that his method that he demonstrated here at the Hotel Shelton could help miners who were working underground. As with so many details of Houdini's biography, this is a a very morbid and slightly poetic last trick. For he died two months later on Halloween due to a ruptured appendix. That was October 31st, 1926.
1: And this happened in Detroit, right? This happened in Detroit, yes. And Uh the story is that a a student was passing by and punched him, sort of sucker punched him. Yeah, I mean, it was like
0: Houdini just said, you know, punch me because I have a, a great physique. Now, we don't really know if this was the leading cause of of a ruptured appendix but you know this is part of the the lore well his body was sent back to new york and a funeral was held at the elk lodge ballroom at 43rd street in times square with 2000 people in attendance there members of the society of american magicians broke a wooden wand over houdini's coffin His body was then taken via a very, very long caravan to MacPila Cemetery in Queens. And he was interred the same place as his whole family, including his mother and his brother, Hardim.
1: Wow, so Houdini's final resting place is in a cemetery in Queens.
0: Or is it? For, you know, even then, many people questioned whether this seemingly final moment wasn't in itself some kind of macabre but grandiose act on the part of Houdini Spiritualists continued to claim contact with him in seances for many many years afterwards in fact his wife Bess even offered $10,000 to anyone who could assist in contacting her husband from beyond the grave Hmm. she held these yearly seances for a decade had the final one in 1936 And indeed, you can still visit his grave. It's actually like an extraordinary visit. There is to this day a bust on the Etcetera, that is his uh, final resting place. Throughout the years, there have been many different kinds of busts. Many of them have been vandalized. Many of them have just disappeared.
1: So that is the end of Houdini. But where does that leave us as a sort of story about New York and magic?
0: Well, I mean, this stage magic has not obviously not gone away. It's even gotten perhaps even more popular in many ways, continuing to cast its spell upon New Yorkers, from David Copperfield mm-hmm. making the Statue of Liberty disappear, to Penn and Teller bringing their quirky blend of magic and comedy to Broadway and off-Broadway stages. Houdini's legacy lives on in such flamboyant acts as David Blaine, who, mm-hmm. do you remember when he froze himself in a ice block in Times Square. Absolutely. I also saw him electrocute himself repeatedly um, over on a pier on the Hudson River.
1: So there is a direct line from <laughs> yeah. from Harry Houdini's antics and PR stunts to David Blaine. Yeah.
0: And then there's, of course, Derek Delgadio, whose magic show called In and of Itself on Union Square, you know, brings that magic literally into the streets of New York in its own unique way.
1: For more on Houdini and the Golden Age of Magic in New York, head to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we will have many illustrations, um, even some film clips of the the magicians and the magical antics that we've talked about today. Now,
0: I wish you could see the floor over here because it's like a lot of cutting room material here (laughs) that we are going to present at the New York Historical Society on Tuesday, August 14th. So run out and get your tickets because it's sort of an extension of this show, really.
1: Yes, we will be showing many, many images and clips of magicians in New York at work. We also want to thank our
0: patrons for supporting us on Patreon.com. Your monthly support helps us produce the show and make it bigger and better and ever and allows us to go do research at the New York Public Library and look up these very special and very
1: unique artifacts. As a thank you for joining us on Patreon.com, that's dot com slash Bowery Boys. We have extra audio downloads, but we also have little invite-only events, such as a patron meetup that we had last week here at our recording studio. Here at Dumbo. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. So thank you to the patrons who made it down to Dumbo for that event. In addition, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So thank you for helping us conjure up the life of Harry Houdini and the great magicians of New York's Golden Age.
0: Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.